0: Welcome to the Triathlete Hour. This week, we're talking to Gabriela Gallegos who serves on the USA Triathlon Board and on the World Triathlon Board. Gabriela talks to us about what that even means, what they're working on, and how she started a triathlon series in her hometown of El Paso, Texas. Now, Gabriella and I talked two weeks ago, back when Texas was in the middle of a massive storm and before the most recent USA triathlon vote on the updated bylaws. So I didn't ask her about those at the time. But I do want to note now, I went back to Gabriella last week after there was some confusion in the triathlon community to talk about the bylaws and ask her for some clarification. Now here's what she told me. If you're a USA team member, then you're being asked to vote right now on the updated bylaws. It's a fairly straightforward vote aimed at bringing the organization in line with the most recent federal laws. You can see all the proposed changes on the USAT website and we'll include the links in our show notes for you to look at in detail. Now, one of the things that has caused people a lot of concern was some language about USAT members being required to comply with safe sport rules. USAT's general counsel clarified for me that one, this is not new. And two, it doesn't mean that every USA team member has to take the safe sport training, nor does it ban consensual relationships between adults. Now go check out all the do- all the documents, we'll include a link, and make sure you vote by the end of the month if you're a USA team member. And we promise the conversation with Gabriella is much more interesting than being about bylaws. Now first, we chat with Laura Adol again for Sid Talks in advance of Challenge Miami this weekend. Get all the details on how to watch, after this break. All right, we're back with Sid for Sid Talk. Sid, last week we talked about Iron Man New Zealand and then I had to go and redo the intro and say, sorry guys, Iron Man New Zealand got (laughs) cancelled.
1: Well, yeah, so it's been postponed. It's been postponed now to the 27th of March, but yeah, for a few days it was a bit... Uh, yeah, it was. Who we was finally excited that there was going to be a race, and like Ironman New Zealand was pretty much the. Well, I was in Boulder last year and did the comment, did some of the commentary on it, and it was kind of that last race before that we kind of saw before everything closed down. And New Zealand have had a pretty unrestricted year. I mean, they had an initial lockdown which was pretty harsh, but then since then, it's it's kind of been life as normal for New Zealanders. they just can't get in and out of the country right and it all it all looked good there was a bit of a wobble going into challenge Wanaka but that was okay and then we had it was Ironman New Zealand like yes seven days out they had another community outbreak I think in Auckland which meant that they shut the city of Auckland down um for seven days which mean meant they would review it on the day after Ironman New Zealand would have been raced um, and the rest of the country was put on restrictions, which basically meant, as far as I can work out, that um you can't have gatherings of more than a hundred people. So that's why it kind of they couldn't couldn't put on put on the race. Um I think they've done an amazing job to turn it around so quickly and have it have it on the 27th of March. I know they were I was talking talking to some friends and they were they were still going to like do a virtual um or you know they were still going to do an ironman distance right. like on the same weekend and i was like hey you might just want to hold off on that because they then announce that the race is actually like two weeks later you probably <laughs> don't want to have a full distance in your legs however you're doing it to start with and i guess they don't do it because
0: usually when they have to reschedule something three weeks later or move it they have to worry about travel like people traveling from far away but it's like not a problem not a problem that's right exactly <laughs> i mean that's the
1: that's the, but one of the bonuses, like, um, of it being in New Zealand, that the travel and the number of people going are all New Zealanders. So it, yes, there are travel that they've had to arrange and accommodation, but I mean seeing some of the forums and I'm in some of the groups for the people training for New Zealand. I think the locals have been fun. They do have a great relationship with the local community. And it sounds like the locals have been amazing at like helping people out with accommodation and, and getting everything rearranged. So, and it's yeah. also,
0: I mean, it's not funny, but it's kind of funny. When we say an outbreak in Auckland, like five <laughs> people got
1: sick, basically. It, it's something like that. Yeah. I heard, uh, I, to be, I would probably get misquoted. Um, I didn't fully check out, but I heard a guy yeah, tested positive and then went to the gym. And so they, so shut the and they shut down the city. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when we're talking about outbreaks in New Zealand, the same happened for Wanaka. We're talking like half a dozen cases, if that, mm-hmm. and they shut things down. And look, I get it because they're an island and they've managed it really well from what we can see so far. And obviously, if it did spread, we've seen the rate of how it spreads through some other right. countries, so that could be devastating for the UK for New Zealand. Um, but also, at some point, they're gonna have like this. It's not gonna. Anyway, that's another conversation. That's another topic. It's not a triathlon <laughs> oh, no, podcast.
2: No, 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 uh, and, then you're, and then, and
0: then, for some, we're doing it completely differently. Uh, you're headed to Miami tomorrow, so by the time this airs, you will be in Florida at Challenge Miami, yeah. which, I mean, the last big race we saw was Challenge Daytona. And my understanding is Miami is going to be structured very similarly. First off, it's going to be a track. So tell us some of the details about that. And then secondly, Daytona went off so well, they've attracted a bigger field to Miami, even though they have a smaller purse. So so you have all the details on how we can watch, where we can watch, all that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. So I think... um... So Challenge Daytona or Challenge North America, I I think are going to develop a race series all around the NASCAR tracks. That's where they've got a relationship with. So I think we're going to see more races popping up in North America, but they'll all be at a a NASCAR track. So if you want to try and predict the future, go look at the NASCAR race series and then look at Google Earth and find a track that's got water inside it or water nearby. And you probably get an idea of where races in the next few years might pop up. Um, Obviously, Daytona was combined with the PTO Championship, mm-hmm. so had that huge start start list. Um, but I think Miami as well, people saw the race. I hope that the athletes felt they were treated well by the race and enjoyed it. And so with Challenge Miami being announced, and at that point, or at this point, one of the only races as an option for many people it's yeah once it's once again drawn like a pretty a pretty stellar start list which is exciting I mean yes less of a prize purse but then people are just I think we're all just desperate to to get on a start line and race and, and I think the I think the other thing with these races is that they are going to be live coverage and so mm-hmm. for the pros in difficult years that live coverage does give them an extra bit of leverage perhaps with sponsors or going in, you know, saying that we are racing and we are being seen by, you know, so for challenge Miami, it's the same team that did the coverage for Daytona. So it's NASCAR productions. Um, it will be going out live. This time it's going out live on Facebook. Um, I think there is a nominal fee to watch the pro race. Um, it's less than a coffee fee of the day. So come on guys, let's, uh, Let's make it happen. Um, I think the age group race is going to be live streamed as well, but that's going to be for free. But then it is going to be, and I'm just going to check the right timing. It is going to be on um, NBC. Have I got that right? NBC Sports? Yep. Um, So on March the 18th, 21st and 22nd, there'll be like a highlights show on NBC. So you can um, watch
0: it live online on Facebook Live, like we've—I yep. mean, all of us have. All of us, many of us, have watched Iron Man on Iron Man Live on their Facebook Live. They do like you know, it's it's pretty. It's it's what you see on TV. It's just on Facebook.
1: Yeah, connect and your think,
0: connect your Facebook to your TV if you want to watch on a TV. It's fine.
1: That's right, and I think you know, knowing if we you saw the the quality of the production in Daytona. And if you give them their credit, that was the first time that the NASCAR Productions teams had filmed and covered a triathlon. Mm-hmm. And I think they, as soon as that broadcast finished, they'd already written like pages and pages of what we can do better, what we didn't do, what, what we missed. What are
0: some He's examples?
1: Um, I think just probably getting more camera, as with any race, having more cameras out on on track to cover more of the other stories of the athletes. Mm. So there's always that focus on the front athletes, but actually in a race like Daytona or Miami, you've got a lot happening further down the field and then not just having them sort of show up at the run element, just go, Oh, there's a battle going on further back. So I think having different cameras out on track, whether that's static or having more mobile cameras out there. um, I think things like that, I think we'll see a lot more of a development in technology Mm -hmm. for the racing. So I think they're going to be able to, you know, when the camera shows a certain athlete, they're going to be able to pull up a lot more stats around that athlete. And actually, combined with some of the work the PTO is doing, I think I'm okay to say this, I think there's going to be some, like, comparisons of rankings against athletes, the athletes, and things like that coming out. So, I, I know that's what they want to do going down okay. the line.
0: Um, Torsten Rad does a lot of their, like, data for them, right? And okay. Yeah. I talked. Yeah. I talked to him about some of doing some similar, like let's do some rankings and figure out who would match up with who, and see, and then great minds, yeah. great minds think yeah, alike.
1: There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know. I, I think that's what that's what people want. That's going to make it interesting, especially like if you've got now. I know Challenge North America. All their races are going to be around that middle distance mm-hmm. or that odd odd kind of distance, but around the middle distance length. They're not going to do any longer distances. I don't think. Um, but you know, then what are the other ways to make it interesting for the viewer? Like it's about telling the stories of the athletes. It's getting their interviews pre and post as well. So you can put those in when they're on screen, but it's showing them like what bike are they riding and, and showing, giving that exposure, but also then having the stats up about like power, cadence, heart rates, right. how do they rank against the athlete that's in front of them when they come to the run or, or, you know, things like that, that I think is going to make it more accessible to the. To, the, to those of us that love the data and the geeks, but also trying to then explain it in simple terms to those people that are perhaps new to the sport and just mm. watching it for the first time.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to see everyone's power numbers up on screen. So yeah, be great.
1: <laughs> and is it, and
0: I gather Belinda's going to be commenting again, Belinda Granger, who's been on the podcast. We all know she's she's fun. And are they going to have people on the track again? Like Alicia Kay, I thought, did a great job on track. Um,
1: yeah. She was brilliant. As far as I, I think so, and I assume I haven't fully heard that one. I know Belinda is going to be doing the commentary in the studio. Um, I would imagine they will do the commentary on the track because I think that really, that works really well. Um, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully that'll be the case. Cause I think you get a good, I, I really liked, yeah. Alicia was great as well. So yeah, she did such a good happy. job.
0: I, I convinced, uh, I commissioned her to write stuff for us. So. Yeah, there, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> But I mean, part of the whole PTO thing is try, I mean, this is their mission. They've been clear about this from the beginning, making professional triathlon, a spectator sport, a mass sport, like up there on par with, well, maybe not football, but you know, golf, tennis, um, that people want to watch that they follow that they, now the thing is, and this is what I talked to them about a year ago when they launched was they're not the first ones to try this, right? Every few years, somebody comes along and says, I want to make triathlon a spectator sport, uh, most recently, Super League. Chris McCormick, yeah. Super League did it, and they're going a totally different direction. They're making it super short, weird format, like exciting, exciting, exciting. Lots of crashes, um, but they also <laughs> have really good coverage, really good commentators. Yeah. Before that, you had uh, like High V threw a bunch of money at it. You had you know there, you had the million dollar challenge that one year with the. Really? Uh, so the people have tried things, and I guess, all right, now we're gonna solve the solve triathlon problem. <laughs> what is it? that we need to make triathlon spectator friendly to make it a spectator sport.
1: I, yeah. the Million dollar question. I mean, <laughs> I think the other thing is um, again, so it's, there's there's the PTO obviously trying to make it spectator friendly and get bring in and bring in sponsor that. But I think challenge North America as well, have their own kind of mm. ideas and push to, because uh, it's them that's driving all this NASCAR production, doing the, doing the, the, the live shows and stuff. And also, Challenge North America have got a big drive to make what they want to do is really make it engaging, and this is probably more in real life at the racetrack, but or at the race, but make it really engaging between the pros and the fans. So they're working off the NASCAR model, where the drivers really have a great rapport and and one on one or you know um, in real life uh, engagement with the fans at the track on race day. And so at the Challenge North America races, obviously COVID makes it a little bit tricky um with what you can do but there's there's like the pro-am relay where you know the, there's a pro that races the age groupers get to bid on the pro mm-hmm. to be the swim and so there's that engagement and then organizing the race so they've done the pro race on the friday so that then the pros can be there without their race at the back of their mind as the age groupers race on the saturday and sunday and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, now I know that wasn't asking answering no, your no. question. But I did.
0: I did see a uh, side point there. I did see Jan Ferdino is part of the pro am relay, and now and I've been making bets in my head on how much people are going to bid to raise. So Jan. I would
1: be would be fascinated because normally Lionel Sanders is the biggest, right. is the guy that gets the biggest bid. He had like something like four thousand dollars on him at least for one of the bike. I think for the bike leg in the last. So it'd be interesting to see. I'm pretty sure Jan would, yeah. Smash through that! I don't
0: know. (laughs) Yes, but yes, but you're right. That is like at the race. That is in person, and that's not. I mean, that's not what drives you know TV coverage necessarily. That's not the same thing as as millions of people watching um, an event. I mean, I think it's
1: it's interesting because I will watch it because I love the sport and I already am involved in the sport, and that's perhaps why. So it's hard to answer that question Mm because I'm like, I'm just going to watch the race because I love it, and then you know the people. But so I think if I say on that, I think it's about, it's not just showing the front of the race and the leader, it's showing the stories and getting to know the athletes as personalities and characters. I think that makes it more interesting when you watch. I think it's having good quality cameras that doesn't cut out or, and you're actually watching the race rather than watching the guys in the studio all the time because you don't want to be... You know, however great they are as commentating, you want to be watching the race. I think I do think Super League are doing a great job at the coverage, like the arena games and stuff like that was was really cool. But it was very contained Mm because it was on bikes and treadmills. So that's, And that's, I think, where you have an opportunity with the NASCAR tracks, because you can put static cameras up and you can have the cameras going around the track. Right. Um, It does sound
0: like contained might be key to making really good coverage um, because that does one of the big challenges with marathons, with Ironmans, is just how spread out you get. And even if you have two dozen cameras, like they can't be everywhere. You know, it's a a very large course. Um, They are going to do another Super League Arena games in April, I want to say. And Lucy Charles has signed on to race it. So So it should be you know fun to watch it will also be streamed live um there's there's plenty of triathlon to watch i keep thinking about something you and i were talking about which is for us you know for people in the sport we've watched facebook live coverage we've watched like wits up steph hansen does did her own like bootstrap coverage of uh uh the Ironman man australia karns um Live Feisty, Sarah Gross, one of my friends, used to do, like, set up a camera on the side and, you know, yeah. cover Lake Placid. And, and those got tons and tons of comments. People watch yeah. them. So maybe it's, like, not as complicated as we want to make it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, I think – well, I think there's – when you're just appealing to the triathlon fans and with – the limited racing at the moment people are just desperate to watch something right. and to have that entertainment like we're all like you know a lot of us in lockdown and stuff like that you you're kind of just wanting to see that the race is happening and, and get that fix of sports so that's where i think you know like i think steph at witsup did an amazing job when she covered the races in australia last year and she did it on a, a shoestring like right. and you know but had someone on the ground and was doing some updates. We'd got some pre-recorded interviews and questionnaires with the athletes and that sort of thing. Um, so there are simple ways you can do that, but I think we get into a blocker of um who controls it and the race events right. organizers, either it's rights or they just want to have this control where it's like, we just want to get your race out to as many people as possible. However, that is done, you know, if it's literally holding a phone up at the side of the road so we just can people can see people racing um yeah i think we do sometimes oh, i think the events try and it, complicated sure. it complicated sometimes to try and hold on to the power whereas like we're just trying to grow the sport surely just getting it out there however we can to more people is is going to be better for everyone in the long run
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, Kona is kind of the pinnacle of broadcast coverage. It wins Emmys every year. It's a very good broadcast. It's not necessarily live. It's not it's not um, live sports coverage, right? It's an hour and a half. Very good mini documentary. Uh, But then but then as to your point, I heard in the last few years, so many people were Instagram living or God, back when Periscope was a thing or like live streaming the race on Kona that it would crash like no like the the the, like internet networks couldn't handle it because so many people were trying to just like put on their own broadcast
1: i mean to be fair i do remember the year that um uh, kona was sponsored by a um, camera company and i remember sitting watching online as the camera was focused on transition on the pier and nobody was there. <laughs> like, you'd have one person maybe run in every five minutes. And then, and, like, the race was at the road, and we're like fixated on this camera in transition. Um, so, yeah.
0: <laughs> but, yeah, but I mean, Kona, obviously, that's the other thing that I think triathlon has to overcome when we talk about spectator sport. I don't know if overcome, but, you know, grapple with. We have to really get in yeah. here and, and think about is, Regular people think of Kona. They think of the Kona coverage that they've watched for 40 years, yeah. and that's what it means to them. That's what triathlon coverage means to them. And yeah. if we want to you know, do something different, if we want to do live coverage, if we want to do shorter things, if we want to make it more splashy and fun, like that's going to take uh, kind of an uphill battle, I think.
1: I, I think so. I mean, it would be interesting to see what happens with the Collins Cup and the mm. broadcast for that. You know, I think they probably – obviously they were in Daytona and involved. So they probably took a lot of lessons, um, but they also want to elevate it even more. I think, you know, they've talked about having the athletes mic'd up to the team mm. captains and, you know, so that could be quite interesting to hear conversations going on during the race, as well as like, again, it's that data um, and giving a more, more of an insight into what's what's happening rather than just watching an athlete on screen that you don't really know much much about at that point.
0: We can also bring the I mean, one nice thing about, or not the one nice thing. I actually think the Facebook Live coverage the last few years has been very good. Um, that Iron Man Live did, but the yeah. one one thing that they that they have that we do not have on TV is all the live comments that you can leave comments. <laughs> you should probably just have live commenting on our TV broadcasts. It'll be great. <laughs> 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 this is my just, new brilliant I idea. To, I don't
1: know where to go with that one because <laughs> I just have some of the comments.
0: <laughs> yeah, some of the comments are kind of terrible, but I do think it's it's, it's one of the uh oddities of watching uh, like a professional sporting event yeah. live on Facebook. You get like every person has a has well, an opinion. I mean,
1: it is everyone. Everyone's like that armchair expert. I know, mm-hmm. like going back to Steph Wits up. Like often when she's showing a race. And she'll get loads of comments like, can you show the men's race? Can you show? And it's like the name of the company is Wits Up Women in Triathlon. We are right, right. and you know, you do show some of the men's race. And she does go and take pictures and stuff, but it's it's quite funny from that respect as well. Yeah, yeah. It's uh... a
0: anyway. Sexist comments <laughs> online, we're not gonna get that's another topic for another oh, podcast, no, no. too. <laughs> so... <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to Miami, and I also am looking forward to Super League, and I'm looking forward to Iron Man Live coming back to all of them to watch all of the triathlon all the time this year
1: so i think i think everyone yeah everyone just wants. and then you know the itu races as well they're always pretty good to watch like i think we just all all are craving for that start line now aren't we and whether that's whether we're watching it or we can be there in person like we're just hoping it happens at some point soon
0: Oh yeah. I mean, I, I binge the Olympic street for like three oh weeks. So
1: Olymp- yeah, I, I, well, there's some sports on the Olympics that I do. I do probably draw a line at, but um, <laughs> most of the, most of the sports when it's Olympics, I'm like, just, I'll watch anything. I just love it. Absorb it. <laughs> so it should be fun.
0: Well, thank yeah. you so much for giving us a breakdown and letting us know how to watch all that. And we will keep our eye out. Thanks Kelly. All right. This week we're talking to Gabriela Gallegos. Uh, founder head of race el paso also you serve on all the boards you serve on the usa triathlon board you serve on the america's board you serve on now the world triathlon executive board which i want to talk about because i think a lot of people don't even know what all those boards do and they are and it's very confusing but first off you're in texas are you able to train right now in the snow is it do you guys have the gear
2: Yes, well, so I'm in El Paso, right? So, and El Paso is right. on the far west tip of Texas, so right, snuggled up against Mexico and New Mexico. So, we did have snow this week, but we still have power, thankfully. Um, so, yes, people have been outside. Nobody likes going outside when it's too cold, but we can, so we're good.
0: Okay, so you you like are still racing or racing training outside, biking outside.
2: Training outside, biking outside, yes. All that. All of that. And you actually... Our pools have been closed all year. So that is the one thing that we have not had access to for a while.
0: Wow. I didn't realize pools are still closed in Texas because Ironman Texas is supposed to happen in like...
2: Well, Texas is a very big state. So in El Paso, (laughs) pools are closed. Austin, I know, has had them open pretty much the entire time and other places as well. But ours have, there's a few that are available, but the most used, like city pools, the biggest network is not.
0: Mm. So it does make it hard, obviously, both as an athlete, but as a race director, because you guys, you put on five races and I know you, I mean, you had to cancel them last year. You weren't able to do a lot. And then you like to give your athletes, obviously, enough time to kind of prepare, like get back in the water. Um, And how has that all been going? I mean, are you even planning for races this year?
2: So, yes. Uh, So we just announced Mighty Mohead Triathlon El Paso for April 24th. And we are doing it a little bit differently in many different ways, one of which is that there will be no swim component, Um, for two reasons, but both of them have already been mentioned. One, we haven't really had, you know, equal access to pool space, right? During the summer, you know, some club pools and the Ys have been open, but that's not that many pools, you know, across the city. And the city pools have been closed. The county pools have been closed. So um, I don't think adequate preparation is likely, you know, when nobody's been in the water for a year and we didn't want to throw everybody in, you know, a couple days before. Um, And then also it's an enclosed space so we do that race as a pool swim because we're you know in the desert and there's no open water um and so that created its own public health concern right so any of those enclosed spaces were um were not going to be a good idea
0: got it okay and so let's i mean before like we're going to talk all about race directing and what it involves because i don't think we've had a race director really like on the podcast yet but first off, I mean, you didn't grow up doing triathlon, you did your first triathlon as an adult, and then you just got stuck, right? Like you just kept <laughs> doing it. <Sucked> um, <laughs> and I think, I think it was just like a friend convinced you to come try a sprint, right?
2: Yeah, so it was like, I was on a business trip actually. I'm a lawyer by background, and I was mm-hmm. on a trip with um, another attorney and ran into her at the hotel gym and then talked about it later. And she was training for an Olympic distance race in Austin. Um I lived in Dallas at the time and she kind of gave me the intro of oh there's different distances and this is what that looks like and yeah I'm doing it and you know so it kind of opened that door because before that I had you know been active but never really been you know, aware of how races worked. Of course, you knew about runs, but not mm-hmm. so much about triathlons. So I got into it and bought my first bike since I was like twelve to do a triathlon, which, um, which you know, the bike shop thought was pretty funny, but <laughs> it was great.
0: And uh, and I guess like there just aren't a ton of races in El Paso. I mean, you mentioned there is an open water, but mm-hmm. once you started getting into it, you realize that there just weren't a ton of options. I know, obviously, like you said, Texas is big. Mm-hmm. I'm from California. I always say that I'm like <laughs> California is big. Lots of different things. Um and so there are races in in Austin, sure, in Dallas, but not so much like where you are.
2: Yeah. So I was living in Dallas when I started racing. So I was doing events there and in Austin. And I am from El Paso. I moved back a few years later and kind of was, you know, starting my, you know, life and career and stuff here. And that was one of my biggest concerns about moving actually is I found this thing that I love. I'm enjoying it. There's sprints, there's, you know, access to clubs and people who are doing it on a regular basis. I know where to find a bike, you know, ride on Saturday morning that I can just go join up with. And I didn't know if that was going to be available here. Mm -hmm. And so when I moved to El Paso, it was, gosh, I think I was, it was about 12 years ago. And so, um, It was, you know, I'd been gone for 15 years. And so it was not, you know, an easy entry in that, you know, I didn't know people who lived here anymore in the same ways that I did when I was in high school. Right. And so had to really look to connect with cyclists and runners. And um, there is kind of a strong swimming community because Mm -hmm. we have really strong high school swimming here. Um, But kind of figuring out what does that look like as an adult was challenging. Um, I was able to find, you know, kind of a small tight knit community that were, you know, very experienced, you know, athletes, triathletes, runners, cyclists, and that was helpful because they could show me like where to ride, right? Like you're not going to go just go ride on a main street in the middle of the city, right? You're going to kind of figure out what are the, what are the routes that cyclists are using, you know, to train. So I got introduced to some of that, um, And then realized that the group of triathletes that were, you know, already triathletes were traveling for events. Mm -hmm. So they were going to Tempe. They were going to Austin. Um, We had some that were nearby at uh, at White Sands Missile Range. So they were on, uh, you know, base property. And they were very small and very very bare bones, you know. Really? So it wasn't okay. timed. It wasn't, you know, um, a USAT sanctioned race. It was, you know, again fun and nearby, but small, bare bones, and not kind of of the quality, um, and scale of races that I had been used to and that I had been really introduced to.
0: So, I mean, obviously, there's people all over the country that that's true, right? They're always isn't a triathlon in the backyard. And most people are just like, oh, well, oh, well, you decided to make one, though. You're <laughs> like,
2: let's put <go> one on. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, I mean, the other thing that was happening at the same time was that, so I moved to El Paso and realized that there was... You know, I was noticing things around town that I had never seen when I had been in high school, like um, dialysis places and, you know, not a whole lot of trails. And, you know, all of those things kind of, I think, combined with the and we don't have events in my mind to think that, you know, if people had the opportunity and had a goal that they could set and had a good introduction to that it could be a gateway to a healthy lifestyle, mm. and so those things for me converged at the same time, where my eyes were open to you know we have challenges with obesity, diabetes, you know, um, heart disease, all of the diet-related diseases that come into play um, in in a more sedentary community.
0: And what does it take then to be like? Okay, I want to get a I you know, I've done I've put on races and I don't think they ever grew more than like 50 people. What does it take to really put a race on and make it, you know, successful, big, get it on TV, attract like hundreds and hundreds of people?
2: Well, so I my first step was to go get trained as a race director like through <laughs> USAT, honestly. I mean, one is that I'm an attorney, right? So I see liability everywhere, and so I needed to make sure that I had done my homework to understand what I had to consider. Uh, And then I assembled what I thought was the best team I could find. And so I went a little bit overboard with that, right? Like my, you know, registration captain was an accountant and my safety captain was the highest ranked uh, Marine in El Paso at the time. (laughs) Like, So I really did assemble the best people that I could find to help. And we kind of, you know, sat around the table multiple times going through every scenario that we could imagine. All of us had been triathletes, right? Mm-hmm. So we kind of knew it from the athlete perspective. So as we were doing that, we were walking through our own experience and trying to kind of troubleshoot, if this happens, what do we do? If this happens, what do we do? How do we make a better experience? Um, so one of the things that, that happened is that that first race sold out and we had 450 people um, sign up. And over 80% of those were first-timers. So I freaked out (laughs) because um, my experience had been that as a newbie, you ask the person next to you how to set up your stuff, right? Like you're in transition, kind of, you know, a little bit nervous. You don't know what to do, but you can like watch and ask. These guys will not have anyone to ask. if if 80% of them are new. (laughs) Right, right. And I was getting calls and questions that were, you know, who watches my bike and where do I change? And mm-hmm. just, you know, they were already excited about doing it and the concept, but really didn't have, there was no friend they could ask who had done mm-hmm. it before. You know, there was no colleague that they'd met on a business trip that could, you know, walk them through it. And so that was um, that was when we started doing clinics. And so we held a beginner's briefing and took out a bike, took out all the equipment that you would need for a transition. We had over 150 people show up to that. And so right away it was, okay, people are hungry for information, Mm -hmm. excited about doing this, and we just need to make sure that they're going to be as well-equipped as possible so that they can have an enjoyable race and so that we can keep it safe. Because that, of course, was the other side of the concern. You know, If people don't get it and show up ill-equipped, nobody's going to have a good experience.
0: Right, right. I mean, I've definitely seen that. Like the the people who've been riding inside all winter and then they do their one race without. And it's, it's always a little dangerous for sure. Um, but it ended up being really successful. And now Mighty Muher obviously has sort of become um, an example for other race directors on how to, well, one, both like grow from a small grassroots, but also attract a really wide range of beginners, a really diverse community. I mean, Mighty Muher was a all women's race, but I'm trying there it wasn't like a super beginner Pink it and shrink it women's race. Right, right. right.
2: <laughs> so, yeah. So the first race was actually Eagle and the Sun Triathlon. And two mm-hmm. years later was when I started Mighty Mujer. And part of that was because I saw what we saw in, you know, the triathlon industry at the time, I was getting 70% men and 30% women at mm-hmm. Eagle and the Sun. So kind of started from there and realized that there was a real need for there to be an opportunity for women to race with each other and to feel um, well-equipped. So that clinic idea that we had kind of learned from that first event was just carried to the next level with Mighty Mohead. The race in El Paso is um, on a challenging course. So it is a sprint or super sprint, but the course itself is tough. So right. it's very hilly. You need to be able to control your speed both going up and down. You know, all of those sorts of things were at play. Even the run is a hilly run, you know, even though it's short. So did not want it to be easier, you know, lesser than um, kind of a throwaway because it was an all-female race. So that was all very purposeful, that it was going to feel like an accomplishment no matter who you were, whether it was your first time or your, you know, 37th time. Um, I felt strongly after what I had seen with that first race that it is important for very experienced athletes to have a fantastic experience as well as beginners. And that when they're in the same race, there's a lot to be learned on both ends. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the the person who has done 30 races and is asked a very basic question by a beginner is kind of transported to like, oh, I remember my first race. right? Like, I remember what that was like. Maybe I haven't, you know, been around a whole lot of people who are beginners, you know, at this point in my, you know, triathlon experience, right? But, but they're transported back and they can give tips and they enjoyed that. And it kind of takes some of the um the blinders off right of like i'm here to race i'm only thinking about myself i only do this when they are asked kind of a where do i put my like how does this work like do i do i set up here you know and so it it kind of disarms both directions you know do you ever worry
0: though like I remember my very first Ironman and Iron Man was overwhelming because of all the bags and the, and I was asking some random person and in retrospect, his advice was terrible. Like it was awful. He was going to smoke a joint like in the middle of the race, like put it in his special needs. So, do you ever worry about that? You're like, Ooh, like this isn't, this isn't great. On
2: a outside, we have had a lot of clinics leading up and we also even include in packets kind of a, I think we've done it as an optional handout, like at Packet Pickup, that what to expect in your first race. So mm-hmm. anybody who's going through who is like, oh, that's me, grabs that. And it literally is a step-by-step right. of, kind of what to expect. Um, so haven't had too many, there's been some, right? <laughs> like I am anti-bucket people, right? right. Like you bring like the bucket to set up at their transition. I get it, like I understand, you know, having a little stool is helpful. Um, but it is not great for space and right. for, you know, all that kind of stuff. Okay.
0: Okay. So when I'm sure at this point, a lot of people come, other race directors, like I know that like my Miami has been really successful and, and I know other race directors come to you and are like, well, how do I make my event, you know, attract more women, attract more communities of color? Like, what do you tell them? Cause like, There's an amount where it's not just like, do these three things.
2: It is not just do these three things. Really, it's integrated into everything you do, right? So um, Mighty Mohan generally starts with a social kickoff, right? Mm -hmm. And that is meant to be a non-intimidating place where you can come, learn more about the event, ask your questions, hear people. So we invite a number of women to share their stories, And who is invited to share their story is very deliberate, Mm. right? So it is a range of ages, a range of athletic backgrounds and body types, a range of race. You know, we want to see like that intersectionality come out in who we ask to speak because anybody who's there should be able to identify with something. Mm -hmm. Right. Like if they're listening to somebody and then they learn like, oh, they're a single mom with two kids who are in high school and they're juggling all this stuff like, oh, I can identify with that. If they're identifying with a 65 year old black woman who did her first race last year, they might identify with the, oh, I've never done this before, but if she could do it at 65, I could, or they might identify with you look like me. This is for me. And you felt like this was a great community, you know, so kind of trying to make sure that we're not portraying one stereotypical vision of what it means to be a woman or a triathlete, I think has been important. Um, And then that carries through everything, right? That carries through the branding, through the social media, through the stories we tell, through the, you know, instruction through, you know, it kind of has to be um, really integrated in, in how you see what you're doing, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that makes a difference
0: it's tough though because if you're not involved in every single instagram post Mm -hmm. how do you make sure it's exactly right
2: you can't right Because (laughs) micromanaging is very hard Um, but there's some things that you know can be weighted right Mm -hmm. like you know there have been times i'm like we need to make sure we're showing a range of ages we Mm -hmm. haven't been lately you know what does that look like um, we want to show a range of women, right? And like women from different backgrounds. I haven't seen, you know, so kind of even if it is not necessarily in every post, like if you are thinking about showing a big range and have certain things in mind that you want to be able to mm-hmm. convey, um, I think that kind of becomes part of your brand, right? So, and that becomes part of your team, right? And, and what they are thinking about and caring about
0: now I know last year, I'm pretty sure you quit your, you were doing this all on the side and then you quit your actual big lawyer job to like be a full-time race director. And then COVID happened.
2: <laughs> like, so... Well, so I actually have not practiced law full-time in about 10 years. Oh, okay. But you still, yeah. yeah. So I quit, I did quit my big law job, but that was quite a while back. Oh. So I did that, um, gosh, I don't even remember the year, but at a certain point, once we had added three events, I decided if I really cared about trying to get, um, the community more active Mm -hmm. and really play a big role in that, that I needed to do it full time. So I had been doing, you know, kind of small appointments here there, and there, but not, um, but not practicing law full time. I actually started a new position a year ago, which is what you might have been thinking about, because I don't have enough on my plate, right? <laughs> um, and that was I had just started that in February before all of the COVID hit in March. So
0: okay, and that yeah. was with the University of Texas as like a yeah, so I'm a, know, a health public professor. health professor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that kind of ties together what you were saying before about triathlon and public health, and mm-hmm. and do you see In that job, I mean, do you see triathlon playing a role in kind of improving public health in the community?
2: I really do. Like, Mm. I think that, I mean, one of the things that I think I approach triathlon, you know, in my own work was I wasn't approaching it as a I'm just putting on a race and then leaving and then I'm putting on a race and then leaving. It's a I need to help people get ready for it. I am not trying to make this a one time bucket list deal. I'm trying to make this something that now helps you fall in love with active living. Right. Mm-hmm. And now this is a gateway to that. It's going to be more races in the future, which is going to be good for me. Right. So it's not as though I'm, you know, setting that aside, but it's the sort of thing that we've then seen, you know, especially with mighty Mujer, the woman has led the family mm-hmm. and you see kids wanting to go for a bike ride because now they know that their mom goes for bike rides to train. And, you know, you see full families outside more and going for walks and going for runs and you know maybe the mom and dad are running and the kids are on bikes behind them or you know whatever that looks like it has been something that opens that world up for more people and so it really has been treated as a we wanna i've always wanted to shift culture right and that is what i felt like this could do so i think that triathlon can play a part in that you know by being that gateway because It's accessible to a lot of people, you know, of course we have the added benefits of cross training and, you know, um, switching things up if you get injured and, you know, all of those sorts of things. It's also something that you can do, you know, with kids, with older folks, you know, it has a big range. So you can come in and out of the competitive piece of it, but if you fall in love with the swimming, biking, and running, you know, you'll come back. We call it the lifestyle. If you want to put the lifestyle. Right. right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you were going to expand last year. You were going to have a race in Miami. It was supposed so to be did. bigger. So, yeah. so
2: Mighty Mo had expanded. At this point, it has been in Tucson, El Paso, Miami, and Austin. Mm-hmm. We were able to do Miami and Austin one year. Um, and then COVID hit. So, then so COVID that part hit, is right, correct. So right. we did not have any live racing anywhere last year.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So how uh, how does one maintain <laughs> a race production company with no
2: races? It favored the creative, right? <laughs> so, um, so we did do virtual events and kind of pivoted to that in, I think the first kind of virtual something that we put on was in May, you know, because of course the first thought was if we postponed to July, we'll be fine by then, right?
0: right like
2: right, right. surely if we shut down for a few weeks, like this will pass and we'll be good in July. So we were kind of doing that as as many of us were, you know, kind of um, not realizing the extent and longevity and, you know, kind of critical nature of what was what was to come. Um, so we did pivot to start doing virtual events in May. We did one that was purely um, a fundraiser. So we got a sponsor to help. I started worrying about all the people who are going to be affected if we can not race. Right. And one is our charitable partner. And so we did that first virtual event just as a fundraiser. So if people would um, run, walk, or bike a mile, we got a donation for that mile. So that was kind of how we started out. What we saw right away was that everybody was hungry for a goal because Mm -hmm. we had all been in shutdowns, things had been very, very restricted. You you were in California, right? So you were at some points not able to train outside.
0: Well, (laughs) You could, right. I, it was <laughs> but there were, there were some places that were pretty locked down for sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, not as bad as like Spain where you right. literally couldn't leave right. your house. Right. Yeah.
2: Right. Yes. So we did not have to show anything um, to be out and about, but even still, you know, everybody had been feeling this abrupt transition of life, right? So everything all of a sudden had changed. People were managing school mm-hmm. and their own work Remotely, not quite knowing how, also not knowing how to go from, I can't go to the gym and I like doing this, but I'm not supposed to do it with people, but that's how I do it. You know, so kind of all of that, I think, was such a shock to the system that after, you know, as soon as we hit May, it was just, please, what can we do? And it's Mm -hmm. okay if it's non traditional because we want to feel like a community because Mm -hmm. we felt isolated and we have, you know, our routines have been disturbed and we're trying to figure out what is that going to look like now? Um, so that was, I think, a good introduction to see what that looked like. And then we did start hosting virtual events. So when it was all said and done, we did seven last year, mm-hmm. uh, different kinds and all, you know, came strong, really. Like we, our smallest, I believe was about 250 people and our largest was just under a thousand And so we really did see people excited about it, wanting to see a goal. We did some really fun things with um, our Mighty World virtual event that took place in July, really aiming to make it feel like it was a community event. So we had had people do videos and we ran them all race weekend, right? And this was from, you know, the city council person, longtime volunteers, all the familiar faces that they might have seen at the event, plus others. And that... Felt like race weekend, right? right? Like we had people sending in friends and family, like, you know, giving their, you know, shout out to their person who was competing. And, you know, that was exciting. We did little things like a finisher kit. So they got a, um, a finish tape to run through at the end and chalk to mark their course and like put down motivational messages. So little things kind of started feeling more like okay. you were part of something that was just not you doing another workout. Right,
0: right. Because right. I've been like, I've been thinking, like, looking a lot at like the different kinds of virtual events because I think we're all a little tired of the like, oh, just go out and run a 5k on your own and like, let us know how it went. Um, so yeah, I've been looking at a lot of the different designs, you know, like the, the the doing it over like a rolling week, having like a course marked that you can go and ro- do any t- your time on your own. There's like some interesting models out there. There's one, oh, I've seen like one where you go into it, but then it's like age graded. You're the results so that you can feel like you're still in like an age group and all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
2: Well, and so I did not do awards for any of my virtual events because, again, I mean, I know it's it's not fair. It's like, you know, there's a lot of problems with that. Um, i I'm, I applaud the race directors who found a, an effective way to do it. Um, I also didn't do it on a specific course just right. because people were all over the place and I started seeing that that was better for attracting people from outside of you know mm. the community so that we had people from a bunch of different states that were all doing it. For that event in particular, doing it over one weekend was important because it started feeling like race weekend, you know, because you really knew that everybody was out doing it those couple days, you know, rather than, you know, "Ah, like it's over two weeks and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, An event that I did put on at the end of the year, and that was the one that was just under a thousand people, was supposed to be focused on El Paso specifically. So that was called a Run the 915. 915 is the area code. Okay. And we challenged people to create teams and to either do 9.15 miles, 91.5, or 915. And so we ended up having these giant teams from, you know, I think we had something like 25 different states and, you know, a few other countries all joining on this team. And 915 miles is a lot. So you had to kind of build up the number of people who were part of your team. And we did it over 15 days. And so that was one that we really saw people um, who might not have already been runners get mm-hmm. in on it. That one was just running specifically. So the good thing about the virtual events is that we have this opportunity to bring in people who were not previously active. Right. And since people have been kind of confined, what they can do is go outside, you know, go for a walk, go for a run. And so I think we're trying to kind of engage them and, and hopefully they'll become part of racing, you know, when, Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, that's our plan, too, is I think, or not our plan, but our hope. You know, there's a lot of people that took up running, a lot of people who bought bikes. Mm-hmm. Now let's convince them to do a triathlon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: yes. <laughs> that's the plan.
0: Um, but I mean, virtual events are great and it's like good to give the community something. Do you make like do you stay in business? How, like how does the race directing business work? Tough.
2: So, I mean, the good thing, I mean, uh, I told my I have an assistant race director who you know has been just amazing and does a lot of the production side. Um, and when we were done with the first virtual event, we we're like, so virtual events, just as much work, no permits, right? <laughs> and and that was kind of like, yeah, so it takes a lot to put those on. Um, what has been important is relationships with vendors, right? And I think a lot of people don't think about all of those next level components of race production, right? So the, you know, shirt vendors and, you know, timers, you know, because I bring in an outside timer. So all of that kind of stuff, they've all been affected too. And so because I had kind of longstanding relationships with certain vendors, we were able to negotiate good prices. We were able to bundle things. We were able to kind of, you know, do some of that at a decent price point we also got smarter with what was being offered and how to do it and how to hedge. Cause you don't want to you know, worry about sizes, you know, or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so we kind of learned how to do that. The part that was a little bit tough was um, making that work right for everyone. So mm-hmm. my philosophy was looking at different events separately so mighty mohead has a very specific brand it has a strong following and people love buying the merchandise Mm -hmm. and so that event in particular we upped what that looked like for our participants right so our fall mighty mohead they got leggings they got a beanie they kind of got a like a winterized you know outfit Um, in the spring one there was also a tank top so we kind of added to what they would be receiving, so that it was a package that was really valued at more than they were paying. Um, but on our end, we were able to control those costs because right. we were working with vendors that were, you know, really long-standing partners. Uh, for other events, we kind of made it very, very simple, right? For run the nine one five, you got a hoodie and a medal, and that's it. You know, no bag, no number, no, you know, no anything else because. We could control the costs, we could, you know, set a certain amount that, you know, was going to be our sellout point, um, and we could afford to mail it, you know, we could do all of these things to kind of keep certain things under control. Uh, we got creative, really, you know, um, for that event, as well as for the Mighty Mujer that was originally based in El Paso, we had a lot of um, community members, right? So yeah. our strongest number of participation of participants was from here. I did the math on what the mailing was going to be, and it was insane. Uh, and it was insane because we had not initially planned for it to be virtual, right? right? So the stuff and you know the swag and all that was not stuff that was easy to mail or light, right? Like it was it was not designed to be that. So we ended up kind of getting creative with that. And um, I have an ambassador team that is uh, incredible. And and we asked them to do home deliveries. And so literally like developed by zip code, who will deliver where, you know, got, you know, gift certificates for gas and, you know, they got a magnet to put on their car with like the race brand. And so, and they got an outfit so that if they were delivering to somebody's house, you know, they kind of knew who was coming since it obviously wasn't UPS this time. (laughs) Uh, So we got creative with that and it ended up actually being this personal touch that I think everybody appreciated. So we started hearing stories of like, wow, somebody put a sign on their door welcoming us because they knew that their delivery was coming today, you know? So it ended up being this way to have community, even when we were just dropping things at doors, you know? Um, we set up a good system.
0: I, uh, I did like, I, I did my first like virtual kind of race, or not virtual, sorry, first race that was like socially, you know, you had a time over two days to go met some guy in a parking lot, gave me my stuff by the back of like his van. <laughs> like, I feel like we're all going way grassroots these days. But
2: yeah, it's just like with, you know, Zoom and WebEx and kind of all of the video meetings. Everybody now has a glimpse into the other part of your life, right? Okay. Like you see backgrounds, you see dogs, like you see kind of like what real life actually looks like.
0: I'm like, all right. So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you're also on the USA triathlon board um, and you've been doing that for a few years. And I know, on like a larger national scale they've been seeing these issues and these problems like across the board right mm-hmm. and i mean what is you what is usat doing i know what what can they do like what are you seeing cuz they obviously have also been hit by you know the lack of races the lack of memberships all of that kind of thing
2: yeah so usa triathlon is a great organization you know and really has a broad array of functions within the industry right so for those who don't know kind of the range of that it there's everything from race directors to mm-hmm. athletes to coaches to you know elites to the olympic team you know all of that is kind of you know under different functional areas through usa triathlon and kind of touches it one way or another a lot of the revenue comes from memberships Mm -hmm. and most people are buying memberships because they're racing, right? Right. And because that race is a USAT sanctioned race. And so that's kind of where the insurance comes from. And, you know, that's um, a big piece of that. So that part has been, you know, devastating, like, you know, like it has been in a lot of places. Um, I think USAT has done an amazing job at also getting creative, mm-hmm. you know, at figuring out what's next. And they've really been a leader in developing, you know, return to racing guidelines, you know, and did that early and did that for, you know, the full race director community. It also helps give athletes an idea of what this might look like, mm-hmm. you know, going forward that I think was really, really important. Um, changing what the value proposition looks like for members and really thinking about that, I think has been important.
0: You mean like now they get a triathlete
2: magazine also? You know, things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly like that. Uh, So it, it matters, right? Because it's more than um, like, it's the question early on is like, can you be a triathlete if you're not doing triathlons? Right. right? Like what does this look like? Um, And Will you be a member if you are not racing? Because if your only reason for doing that was because you were, you know, required to, because that was the race's insurance, what else you got? Mm-hmm. You know, so so really looking at resources and I think developing those, um, offering members, you know, more benefits with partners, right? Like it, it could be different sponsors. It could be, you know, Triathlete Magazine is a great example of that, you know. But really trying to figure out how to be um, efficient and effective, but really offering members great value that is beyond just racing you know
0: and what is i mean as a board member we've had ben collins on before and he kind of told us what do you guys actually (laughs) do with any of that i mean you're not actually deciding like how you know what a membership is going to include and what discounts a member is going to get so what do you guys actually
2: decide Yeah, so it is, of course, USAT has a staff, right, Mm -hmm. and the staff kind of does the day-to-day operations, and we're not, you know, involved in day-to-day operations of the organization. It's much more thinking about the strategic leadership, right, like where, where do we want to see USAT going? What are, you know, the important goals? How can we, you know, serve members? What are our values? All of those kinds of things are happening at the board level um so it's really the governance right mm-hmm. and the strategic leadership you know so um a lot of people are you know familiar with nonprofit boards of directors this is a nonprofit board of directors you know and so it is coming from a different place in you know people's lives so they may not think of it that way you know as that kind of an organization um but it is it truly is and it needs that strategic leadership to go in a different direction you know or to um to consider what's next, right? So it kind of happens at that level rather than at the, um, you know, how much is a good discount,
0: right? Right, like, right, right. Yeah. Well, so and what is what is the strategic direction of USAT? What is next?
2: So we kind of go through this every couple of years, right? <laughs> like as we're as we're looking at like the next quad, uh, is kind of how the direction looks. So we've we've looked at things like um, diversity. Like, what does that mean, you know, for the organization, and what is that going to look like going forward? What are the priorities, um, members? How do you better serve members, and how do you um, increase the number of people who are triathletes and make triathlon that sport? Kind of just like we talked about, right? Like, how do you make it that gateway for people that can be a lifelong sport? It can be more than just an event for them. It can be a lifestyle where they're, you know, getting healthy, being active, all of those sorts of things too. Have you come up with an answer? No, I mean, yeah. it's, it's an ongoing process, right? right. Like, and things change and things come up and, you know, how do you do that? And, and what, What does the organization structurally need to be able to move forward, you know, and that changes here and there. Uh, And then some of it is very basic, right? Like the things that USAT has now invested a lot in are trying to like get technology where we need it. Right. Mm -hmm. Because some of that has been a challenge, you know, if the membership system is really cumbersome and nobody likes it and they're not going to use it as a resource. right? Right. So things like that to be able to offer more and better, I think is a, is a big piece of it.
0: And then you were elected to the world. Well, it was called ITU. Now we're calling it world triathlon, (laughs) world triathlon board, um, earlier this year. And I believe, uh, I mean, I don't know that the USA, sorry, the executive board, because world triathlon has a number of boards. And I believe like they're you're kind of like the first woman of color on that board. Um, which is cool. And then what exactly does the executive board for? Cause world triathlon, I think a lot of, you know, athletes, like, don't, how does world triathlon even affect me? Like, isn't that just the Olympics? Like, what do I care? Right?
2: Well, right now, a lot of it is the Olympics. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us if the Olympics
0: yeah. are going to happen?
2: <laughs> this is a lot of what we're talking about right now. Uh, but yeah, there's so world triathlon, formerly ITU, um, has an executive board, much like the, you know, USAT board in terms of talking about the strategic direction of the organization and mm-hmm. priorities. Um, There are also a bunch of committees, right? So there's a women's committee, a coaches committee, you know, that are focused on more specific things. Um, World triathlon strategic direction has been trying to now increase the number of age groupers and kind of how do they kind of get pulled into what world triathlon events look like, you know, and then a large part of it is looking at that elite level competition, especially right now. Right. So they're governing, um, how do you get into the olympics right and when and what does that look like and although each country has different ways right. of you know making that determination um there's also things that happen at that world level that are trying to ensure you know fairness and equity for for all
0: right there's like a world pro- so are you deciding like the world pro- it's it's this you wanting
2: Things, yes, okay. like we uh, <laughs> were not deciding all things, but we were deciding something. So, you know, the qualification period froze um, mm-hmm. on, you know, in mid March last year, and that has not been reopened yet. And it's very, you know, it's a big challenge and it's been very eye opening to see kind of how things are dealt with in different parts of the world. And then also to understand how COVID has been affecting different parts of the world, you know, developing nations versus much more developed, um, large versus small, you know, regionally, all of those sorts of things. And, you know, for people who are thinking about world scale competition, and then we're talking about athletes who are, are, I mean, they are at the very, very top of all of this. How is that going to be kept fair? If not everybody can travel, if not everybody's had access to training opportunities, um, maybe couldn't go to events that would then be qualifying them for Olympic competition. So it's, it's very complicated, you know, And there's a lot of different things to consider in addition to the basic how do we keep people everyone keep everyone healthy,
0: right, right, right. right. Um I thought world tra- I mean, they only did a couple races kind of this last year. I thought they had pretty good protocols. It seemed obviously, there were some very last minute kind of like it's going to be a world championship in four days, the decisions that were were kind of nutty, but
2: it happens well, and now, you know, um, the situation keeps evolving, you know, like there seems to not be like a, and then by this date we will have an answer, you know? So it's that challenge that I think we've all been facing in different parts of our lives. It's not unique to those parts of our lives, you know, and it's happening at every level. And then when it's happening at the world scale, you're, you know, the travel stuff has been even further beyond, you know, what, we're imagining right because some some places are you know restricted from traveling not just outside their country but within different you know states or provinces or are
0: you talking about Australia you're talking about Australia <laughs>
2: <laughs> some mobility I actually was seeing about a couple of places in South America uh, uh, might be restricted from traveling outside of certain areas so even mm-hmm. like within the country there's restrictions on mobility based on where you're located. So one area of the country might be much more open, much more, even much more ready to host an event. But another area of the same country is under a much stricter, you know, mobility restriction.
0: So the World Triathlon board, uh, executive board, obviously you're like, I'm I'm assuming you're meeting on Zoom. You're all meeting on Zoom. You're like voting on, we're gonna, you know, not open the qualification period until May, all this stuff you mentioned that you're trying to expand into age group two because on a, on an age group, like day-to-day regular triathlete level, like most of us think, Oh, I like the 70.3 worlds, Kona worlds, like, and then you have to think, Oh yeah, like ITU world triathlon has a worlds too. So what are you guys doing that affects the everyday
2: regular? You know, so it's, one of the things that has been really eye opening is seeing what that looks like in different parts of the world mm-hmm. right so i think in europe the age group interest and participation in world triathlon events it's higher, yeah. is much stronger mm-hmm. you know so but then in the us ironman kind of has that same kind of level, you know what I mean, of um, of participation. Even though it's obviously it's private, not you know, not World Triathlon that kind of stuff. But in the U.S., I don't think that there's the same level of exposure, you know, to those types of events. Even though you know, some people travel for them, of course. Um, but it is something that I think could be expanded. You know, we just have a different kind of network of events. That are yeah. up right here but in other parts of the world the age group component of world triathlon events has been gaining a lot of ground mm-hmm. you know and it's been more than just an elite competition even though frankly i mean who doesn't want to go watch an elite competition yeah. you know so that is fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: i mean there are obviously uh world triathlon itu has events i mean everybody does compete in age group world, that is like a very large thing. They, and they've been expanding in recent years. You know, you get like long course worlds now, you get duathlon world, there's a whole multi-sport festival. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question because I think people don't, I mean, there's even like rules world triathlon makes that then trickle down to USAT that then trickle down to like your local event that people, not everyone necessarily realizes.
2: Oh, absolutely. So one of the things that happened last year um, with, I'm trying to remember, like if I say last year, how far am I thinking? Right. I'm actually talking about the end of 2019. Um, So there was, you know, rules harmonization that, you know, one of our board members, you know, took the lead on and was really working with a committee on. And it's to make sure that our rules are close in line with World Triathlon, right? So that it's not this, you know, well, if I'm racing here, it's a totally different set. And if I'm racing there, and we will still have differences, but certain things that could be, you know kind of made more uniform so that if an athlete is racing at multiple um, multiple levels or in different places they have closer to a standard of like this is just the rule right right um, yeah so, so those we- kind of things have been happening and those do end up affecting individual athletes at any race that they might be in large or small um whether it's if it's a usat sanctioned race
0: right right and obviously obviously there have also been kind of recommendations about moving forward with things now and and on world triathlon can't tell some race director in texas what they should do but they can make recommendations that usat adopts That then you know
2: absolutely absolutely yeah well and hopefully if you're you know racing somewhere you can kind of go anywhere and know what a race looks like you know and kind of what's expected of you when you're racing
0: Back back in times when we traveled places, it would always be wildly different. It was like in Europe they followed some rules. In China, they were making it up as they went. Like it was always like, whoa, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We usually finish with a would you rather? And here is my would you rather for you, Gabriel. Would you rather race or race
2: direct? Oh gosh. <laughs> Oh, you're making thinking about it. I'm gonna go with race directs. Okay. Because of the amount of I think satisfaction and like I it has been so incredibly rewarding to watch so many people find this and to be part of helping them, you know, Mm -hmm. achieve that. And like, you know, I've seen, I've gotten so many incredible stories from people and as a race director, you sometimes lose sight of that, right, because you're in the technical and trying to produce and be very detail oriented and make sure things are moving forward and efficiently. And then sometimes I'm just kind of like hit by this out of nowhere, you know, random email with a story and a thank you. And you kind of are backgrounded, you know, and realize like it it kind of does actually matter. And it really is making a difference in people's lives that I don't know, right? you know? And so that um, I find really, really great reward in that community aspect of things. I get that. Yeah.
0: We're not all like we can't all inspire people with our <laughs> racing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like I, I am not gonna, I cannot imagine that I'm gonna inspire a whole lot of people while they, you know, just see me ride my bike, you know? Others <laughs> might, because they will have a different story that has gotten out there, you know. Right. But for me personally, you know, as again a recreational level athlete, you know, it's it's a different story.
0: Well, uh, I get that. It makes sense. We can't all be Gwen Jorgensen, it's fine. <laughs>
2: We can dream.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you so much for chatting with us and um and I really hope there are races this year, you know?
2: There will be. There will, there be. will be. You're making it happen.
0: Thanks to Gabriella and to Sid for talking with us and thanks to all of you for subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Keep listening and keep training.